It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most probably listening through a pair of headphones, which means I have the perfect sponsor with the perfect product for you. It's Studio, and they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones. Generally, fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality, and the high-tech ones are bulky and not design-orientated. Studio bridge that gap while emphasizing sleek, modern Scandinavian design. To get a 15% discount on any of their wares, go to studiosweden.com which is spelled s-u-d-i-o sweden.com and simply put in the code dtd when purchasing a pair of headphones hello and welcome to mid-atlantic the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the atlantic from the perspective of the other i'm royfield brown in a rather cold and nippy san francisco who's been catching up with my florentine history by watching the medicis on netflix which is rather fortunate because i was sent a book a rather good book the age of discovery navigating the storms of our second renaissance by chris coturner and ian golding now the guardian says it's a landmark new book and richard branson who needs no introduction says this book will help the world the premise of this best-selling book is that the renaissance holds lessons for the world today does it and if so who is the modern day savonarola but just before we start the show um, it would be remiss of me not to uh, remind you that, you know what, you can go over onto iTunes or a podcast of your choice and write us a little review. It would mean an awful lot to me because what reviews mean, at least positive ones anyway, is, is new and extra listeners. So please go over to a podcast of your choice. Go do that. Uh, but here is my interview now with Chris. Chris, the central thesis of your book is that we can not only look to the past to understand what's happening today, but to look to the Renaissance, that particular period in history, to understand today's political and social turmoil. Um, Why should we look at 15th century Florence and not, say, 
1848 or 5th century Western Europe, or even uh, some political moment at the end of a dynasty falling in China, for argument's sake. Why do you think we need to look to the Renaissance to understand what's happening today? Mm, I mean, that's a a great question, Royfield, because I guess, you know, one thing that... uh, you know, I don't want to stand up and claim is that, you know, there is one moment in history that offers us lessons, that offers us perspective on the present. Uh, And this is that one moment. I mean, uh, the whole of history is this rich endowment of wisdom that, you know, in in, in moments of rapid change, uh, I would argue we should always be looking to to help us take a step back. and just understand, you know, immediate events in some in some wider arc, in some context, uh, and 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 that is, I think, fundamentally the project is to say, you know, we are walking around the world today, and and we 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 talk about this is a moment of disruption, as a moment of rapid change, and every time I hear that narrative, what I'm really hearing is, uh, gosh, wouldn't wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be healthy to have some perspective? On, on the now and 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 that's what the uh, the task of history I think is is to help us have that perspective and then so rightly to your question well you know there are many places in history we can look to to, to try to get some perspective on the present and uh, you know the World Economic Forum um, Klaus Schwab has done a lot about popularizing the notion that we're living in a fourth industrial revolution. Uh, and so mm-hmm. that often seems to be um, a period in time what people want to look to. The Industrial Revolution, it transformed the economics of production. And, and gee, it looks like things like AI and uh, social media, um, you know, uh, blockchain and Bitcoin uh, are doing the same thing today. But well, I, I argue that that's – we- sorry? No, yeah. I, just, it's, I had Peter Joseph on the show last year and he makes that argument and it feels pretty persuasive, you know, that this is a, a fourth wave of industrialization and we're going and um, we're going through the turbulence of that change today. In the next few years, I expect the digital transformation of life to bring huge changes. Everything from science to healthcare to sensors to robotics. Whether it's information technology and the acceleration we see in artificial intelligence, you just look across the board and you can see a lot is happening. It's really the notion of digital technology pervasively impacting every walk of life in every vertical industry on all parts of the globe. So speed is mind-boggling. What I'm particularly concerned about, it is how little the world is prepared for the fourth industrial revolution. If we are not innovative, if we're not creative enough, it will be very difficult to survive in this century. Countries in emerging markets should take the lead. Mobile platforms will define how fast the fourth industrial revolution will be embraced by the country. It's very difficult to try to bridge the gap between a borderless industrial revolution that's being governed by different policies and regulations in each territory and country. So my, my problem with Mm -hmm. the industrial revolution as a metaphor for the now is that I think it is a far too narrow lens for the kind of transformation 
that we are going through today. I mean, fundamentally, the Industrial Revolution began with, you know, a change in the production, in the technology of production, um, you know, in one specific part of the world uh, here in Britain. And it, it had a global effect, but it was very much an economic phenomenon, fundamentally. And there are still parts of the world today that have not yet gone through the Industrial Revolution. The Renaissance in the 1500s, which was really a moment marked by uh, the advent of a new medium, the switch mm -hmm. from an oral to a print culture, uh, the voyages of discovery, which really switched not just economic, but, but political and, and population flows from, from continental to, to global for the very first time. That was a moment where, uh, you know, beginning in Western civilization, we shifted from the medieval age and into the, the early modern era. You know, and, and, and there were some fundamental shifts that took place as part of that. You know, we, we, Europe shifted the very purpose of the economy from subsistence to growth, you know, shifted the very place where we sought truth from sort of the Bible, from Revelation to, to present-day observation, shifted the very notion of what life was about from obedience to, to authority to some wider notion of progress. And it was that, um, that cultural and philosophical transformation, as much as an economic and a technological one, that reshaped the world. And I think that that's the kind of broad lens on the present that we okay, need so to have. Let, let's hold that thought because I, I, I will not remember where I am if I don't just uh, breathe quickly. So what is the psychological paradigm shift which we're going through today then? That if it's a case of an old thinking to a new that's what the, the Renaissance fundamentally was about. And as, and as you said, rightly, it's a case of now society, now, say, now in the 15th centuries or then in the 15th century, societies discovered that they had excess um, wealth. So hence you had Florentine Tuscany. So you could have lawyers, you could have bankers, you had merchants on a scale that you had nowhere else. And because you had that excess, that extra wealth, they had time then to think and then, then to plan, um, and which gave way to a new way of thinking. What is that new way of thinking which we're going to get out of this second renaissance in the early 21st century? I think that it's, uh, I mean, if we look back to the first renaissance, it was really mm -hmm. the the um the the summing together of a variety of paradigm shifts that gave the moment it its transforming spirit and i think that we can we can look the same today so it's not about one idea so much as it is a layering of transforming ideas happening at the same time you know i mean and 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 many of these ideas are contested i mean it's not obvious where we'll end up on the other side of them, you know, in economics, for example, you know, are we once again shifting uh, the the idea of what economics is about from growth to uh, prosperity, say, right? Um, 
are we shifting uh, the idea of um, of what society is aiming for from uh, progress to some wider nation of prosperity? Is our culture of information shifting from the print to the digital? And what is fundamentally, I think, what is happening is that in so many domains of, 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 of society, we are struggling to unlearn habits, behaviors, values that served us quite well in the past. And now we have to learn new ones to serve us better in the future. And, you know, maybe the example that we can almost intuitively grab onto is this transition to, um, to a new social medium. Uh, and there was a Canadian uh, media theorist, uh, quite famous in the 60s, actually, uh, named Marshall McLuhan. I don't know if you'd ever heard of Marshall McLuhan. Yeah, yeah. So you know, one of the things that um, – well, he was famous for saying the, the medium is the message, basically arguing that when the medium changes, uh, so much of society and how society thinks changes too. But one of the things that he predicted at the very advent of computers is that – when we enter the digital age, in a way, our culture is going to shift backwards, is going to regress from a print culture to an oral culture. Because in a print culture, what got printed, what information got distributed had special power, had special authority and influence over what was true and what was real. But back in an oral culture, the only people who had that power were the people who had the biggest audiences. How big the audience was to what got said, that's what determined what was true, what was real. And so it was the princes, it was the priests, you know, who were the only people who had an audience who determined what was real in society. And I think, you know, as we look at the kind of headlines we're grappling with today, you know, like, like fake news – we are essentially grappling with the same problems that we confronted before print in an oral society, where the problem is some people say, well, that's not real. That's not true. But the problem is if the audience to the lie is bigger than the audience to the, you know, the fact check, then it's true. It has a social reality, and we've discovered that our intuitions about how to behave in an information environment of print uh, just haven't prepared us to how do we cope in an environment where all information seems to be on the same level. So, you know, in a big picture, that's the kind of struggle that I'm talking about, that, that I think that if we look to the Renaissance, we can find familiar wisdom to help us navigate these struggles. But if we look at other periods in time, you know, like the Industrial Revolution, I, I, we have less intuitive material to work with to, to help us with some of the most difficult and urgent questions that we're, we're struggling with right now. Industrial Revolution, 18th to 19th century. The economic developments of the 1800s saw the development of agrarian and handicraft economies in Europe and America transform into industrial urbanized ones. The term to describe this phenomenon would be known as the Industrial Revolution and was first used by French writers but made popular by English economic historian Arnold Toynbee 
The Industrial Revolution was underpinned by the Agricultural Revolution. From the mid-18th century to the mid-19th century, agricultural production increased significantly. The huge increase in food output supported the expansion and sustained a large population and boosted trade. The increased use of machines over human or animal power in farming also meant that less farm workers were needed, and they could leave the land to industrial towns. Better metals and richer fuel also contributed to industrialization by creating the steam engine, an integral machine to industrialization which powered factories, locomotives and ships. If we are going to go into a world which is prosperous and is not just focused on growth and we can spread that prosperity quite widely, should we really care about um, a certain fraying of civil discourse and or democracy? Because one, one of the things which um, is kind of written in your book or at least in between the lines is that we have China and its alternative view, which uh, alternative worldview of actually how you govern. Hmm. But it's, that's all about prosperity, isn't it? Getting the average Chinese peasant up hmm. from economic um, destitutism, and if, if that's even um, a phrase, and hmm. giving them stuff. But with that stuff doesn't come um, political liberalism as we would understand it in mm. terms of them being able to um, change their leaders. But but who cares if their economic plight is, is somewhat brighter? Who cares that um, freedom of speech is being curtailed and or that our leaders are coarse and bellicose if we have food in our bellies? Mm. Wow. So, I mean, you've you've put some of the biggest questions of our time on the table. Uh, so, where do we start with this smorgasbord? Let, let me. No, let it's, me... It's, not me. it's not me. That's not me to you. You've written the book, sir. I'm just responding. <laughs> Oh, Dan, they don't tell you these things when you write a book. <laughs> uh, well, let, let, let me te- let me play off a couple of the things you said, and then I'll let you steer where you know which down which rabbit hole you'd like us most to go. Okay. Right. You know, so the I guess the first thing that occurs to me, and and this is again why I think that a Renaissance lens is a helpful metaphor for the present. Uh, you know, to the extent that a lot of people, what do they know about the Renaissance? Uh, not much. And the first thing that comes to mind is, well, it's, it's, art. it's art. It's, it's this, um, it's, it's, uh, Da Vinci and it's Michelangelo and it's the Sistine Chapel and it's about beauty and some kind of golden age, isn't it? Yeah. Yet the historical reality was that, you know, as much as it was a moment of flourishing genius and all of that beautiful stuff, it was also a moment of flourishing risk and uh, tragedy and catastrophe. I mean, we had the voyages of discovery and we had the decimation of uh, you know, Native American populations. Uh, we have uh, Copernicus with his new uh, mathematical theory that the sun is the center of the universe, which you know sets us on a road to what eventually becomes the scientific enlightenment. And we have Martin Luther using this same technology to uh, ignite a Protestant Reformation and a century of religious war on the European continent. Uh, And you did have uh, a flourishing of wealth, 
for those who were connected to the new opportunities of the new world, people who were in the right place to take advantage of the, the shift in economic gravity in the world at that time, sort of from the Mediterranean uh, to, the, to the Atlantic uh, and these ocean trade routes. Uh, and you had economic catastrophe along the old Silk Roads that were suddenly irrelevant. And so I think it is really important, you know, particularly and, – and I think we're, we're better at this today, but, you know, especially in the 1990s, it wasn't so long ago. I think as a society, we did a pretty poor job of recognizing that the, the, the faster that some people are racing ahead um, – the quicker that other people are being left behind. And that, you know, as we uh, achieve, in some cases, and you mentioned China, like economic miracles, uh, we are also at the same time creating levels of, of inequality that uh, we've just never seen in our society, at least in sort of modern society before, and that probably we need to start to, 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 to deal with those. To, to say nothing of beginning to ask the, the bigger question that uh, I, I think you quite rightly point out, because this is going to be maybe the, the biggest question um, that human civilization tries to answer in the 21st century, which is, uh, does, um, does a freedom beyond material want and need really matter? Or... At the end of the day, if, you know, if there is this model, the China model, that can give us everything tangible that we want, do we nonetheless still need a, an intangible value that we can only have if we also participate politically, you know, which was kind of the whole project um, since the French Revolution? among the advanced democracies and today doesn't seem to be nearly as convincing as it was just 25 years ago uh you know when the wall came down you know i'm, I'm just going to quickly just jump in there uh chris because i think that um yes i, I think the chinese model i'm not going to say it's compelling but 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 it but it's there OK, mm. we are going to deliver to you economic growth uh, in 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 a mode which is clearly capitalism, but politically in terms of a lack of uh, freedom of speech. This is still communism. We're going to tell you what to think. And I think that you you, you talk about um, Western industrial nations and I've always been struck by the relative narrowness, at least since the Industrial Revolution, I can say the Industrial Revolution, let's take, take it back even a step further, since the American Revolution, mm. that, that actually in the largest engine of capitalism, America, political thought has actually been incredibly narrow. If you look at the 200 plus years of American history, it's actually been very narrow. We're not talking about... Um, France, which has had numerous revolutions in that time, mm -hmm. as late as uh, what 1958 with the fall of the what the Fourth Republic, you're not talking about even the UK, which hasn't had political revolutions, but has had governments which were 
um, democratic socialist by any stretch of the imagination. And that's before you talk about Italy, Germany, etc., etc. So I kind of think in a a funny way, the Chinese model, which is, look, we're just going to give you uh, prosperity. Yes, there is massive growth right now. But that growth is even tapering off now because it's, you know, the 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 Chinese economy is getting more mature and being leveraged by uh, debt uh, abroad, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so and that you can't grow at 10 percent forever or eventually exactly. or more than the whole world economy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. But but in a funny way, it does mirror America in terms of, it, you know, I, I, I can't be. Uh, I can't call myself um, a democratic socialist and be taken seriously by, let's say, seventy-five mm. percent of of Americans. Mm. You know, they, they have a they just they, they think it's anti-American. Mm. So, so again, the, though I understand looking back at the Renaissance and what the Renaissance gave us, which was a, a freedom to to think, to look at, uh, let's say, the old models of Cincinnatus and um, and the Roman Republic and Greece in terms of um, how the polis, how the city was organized and civic virtue, etc. But we can still have that and have scientific advancement. We can still have creative advancement, artistic advancement. Um, we can have models of architectural form which draw on the past of which we refine then in the in the 15th century and move forward but to hell with politics we you know fundamentally politics becomes about family about you know it's not about great theories and we're going to deliver to you prosperity You know, it's um, there's a lot that I want to respond to there, and um, uh, well, I, I love I love how you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love you how you on the you know, one, uh, <laughs> so you- but uh, one one thing I want to uh, just violently agree with you is um, the sense that you know our within and you know so I'm Canadian, right? So I've I've been born into. Um, uh, sort of a liberal democratic political culture. And within this culture, uh, we love to celebrate how free our thinking is. And yet I think that you are precisely right, that if you step out of it, there is a, a kind of uh, narrowness mm. to the, the just the diversity of political thought that, uh, that we undertake. Um, I did... And, and 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 so you're preaching to the choir here. I, I I did my PhD in the politics of China, uh, and and not because I'm a a China lover, but uh, I love politics. And it struck me that if I want to go and really see diversity of political thought in a society, then ironically, China is the place to go. Um. Maybe, you know, and maybe that's changing a bit now. They've got this strong man, Xi Jinping, who's trying really hard to to make Chinese society as as monochromatic <laughs> uh, in its thinking as as the Communist Party would like us to think it is. But actually, you know, if you if you hang out for a couple of years 
on the streets of Beijing or Shanghai or some smaller interior cities and you talk, you know, get have a few drinks and talk about politics, you find that there is a far wider range of political belief, of political values on those streets uh, than we have on my own back in back in Toronto. Because you have real debates around, you know, like like difficult uh ideas for me like uh you know the state should have a role in determining how many children we can have as a family uh you know as a canadian i reject that outright like i strongly disagree with that statement but i can interview 100 people in my demographic in my cohort in in china and get the complete range of responses but but, but you know but the, it, that's an interesting point per se right because you, um, I think it's fairly safe to say that you are not only um, a Western liberal, but you're, you're, you're middle class. OK, so even though you're, the Canadian government is not going to tell you how many children you can have, if you were, let's say, within your circle in Canada, if you had six children, people would be like, huh. Wouldn't they? So there still is a societal and cultural pressure, and there's an economic pressure too, right? I mean, we we know that it's expensive raising a family, and so we make choices, especially as middle class families, to sort of mm-hmm. um, have a number of children so that we can properly resource the life chances of of each one. Um, the, the point I just wanted to make is that there's there's a rich ideological tradition actually in China. I mean, it's communist. Mm-hmm. But it's also there's liberalism and they've all these people who have been overseas and there's Confucianism and Taoism, all these different things. Yeah. What I the other thing that I think is, you know, and, and over the next 30 years, I think we're going to see the return of politics uh, to places like China. I mean, and you're right that today it's pretty easy to tell Chinese society, look, don't worry about politics. Okay, just just focus on living well, create jobs, create wealth, master these new technologies like AI and blockchain. And, you know, we're going to be world beaters. Woohoo. But the reality and this is kind of one of those funny and sorry that we're talking so much about China. Feel free to diverge me. But I think it's an interesting point for kind of our global future. The irony in China is that the um, the policy is really difficult. The policy problems are really difficult because the scale of the challenges. But the politics is really easy. China is the world's second largest economy and the biggest importer. But 40 years ago, it was a poor, largely rural nation with at least 30% of its population living in poverty. That started to change in 1978 when China launched major economic reforms. The first were agricultural. Farmers were allowed to sell their surplus crops on the open market. Success in agriculture and more open trade led to the privatization of other state-owned enterprises. In 1980, China became a member of the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. That's the same year it created four special economic zones to encourage foreign direct investment. As the economy opened up to the outside world, companies flooded into China to build factories and take advantage of cheap labor. 
Stock markets in Shanghai and Shenzhen opened in 1990. Economic growth boomed the following decade, averaging 10% a year. More than 500 million people have been lifted out of poverty since China's economic reforms began. It's been called an economic miracle, and one the global economy has come to depend on. And take the U.S. as a contrast. I mean, the politics in the U.S. is really hard. And and what's the difference there? In China, you know, when I'm the government and we're setting the budget, it's pretty easy, right? I'm going to give everyone the same amount of money, the same amount of like tax dollars that we gave them last year. But because we're growing so fast, now I've got this whole other new pot of cash that I've never allocated before that I can use to give. Uh, my good friends make them better friends, and I can go make new friends over here. M- my point is that there's no hard trade-offs politically. It's just about more friends every year for the government. Whereas you know here in the UK,、uh, you know transport for London needs a, a bill has a billion dollar hole in its budget. You know trans public transport needs more money. Okay, that's a priority. So who are we going to make a loser? From whom are we going to take money away in order to make that priority? Better funded, right? And we have the same issue in Canada, in the U.S., across Europe. All of the low growth democracies, politics is really hard because to do anything important, we have to deprioritize something else. And you know, in twenty, thirty years, you're right. China's going to be in that same low growth boat that we are in today. And then, and then the politics of okay, you know, we got to prioritize that. Somebody's got to be a loser. Is going to get a lot more difficult, and then we will see, you know, how how robust is their political technology to to manage the pressures, the public pressures of gains and losses politically, versus say democracy, you know. So you know, in nine in the nineteen nineties,、uh, Francis Fukuyama, you know, famously wrote this book way too early called The End of History. Basically, saying that communism is dead, and therefore, in terms of the progress of civilization, there's really no more question about what is the best way. What are the the big ideas that govern a society toward prosperity? Because there's only one big idea left. Now, right now, in 2018, it feels like there's at least two, and it's going to be, I think, over the next few decades. That we're going to have a, a, a giant new historical case and evidence that's going to tell us: Are there really two, or is there, you know, in 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 moments of real difficult political stress, only one that you know offers stability? And I, I'm not predicting what the answer will be, but I think that's a real question. And so, to some extent, the jury's still out. About how robust、uh, the China model is going to be when when push comes to shove in you know twenty thirty years.、Mm. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So, all right, so we've we, we kind of done China and we've kind of gazed into the future a little. So that's all sorted. Right. Um, let's go oh, back. To, that's pretty good for a half hour's work. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's go back to 15th century Florence and try and, or the 15th century European world. So um, who is today's Columbus? Who's today's Copernicus? Copernicus? How about, mm. um, who's today's Gutenberg? Or I think um, Savonarola, I think I know who you're going to say who his modern equivalent is but let's go through those characters so who is our modern columbus copernicus gutenberg and savonarola these are good questions wow okay let me let me start with copernicus hey, hey, listen this, chris this is the reason why i have a podcast not a broadcast show so because uh, <laughs> <laughs> broadcast you know we we only want poor questions it's <laughs> We don't want to think. We just want to do <laughs> noise in the background while I'm making my gusto. Um, it, so, it, so to be honest, Copernicus is one that I've thought a lot about this specific question. And and you know, very briefly, what did Copernicus do? Um, he he shifted um, where. He shifted Europe's understanding of the nature of the universe from, you know, sort of one that came out of the Bible to one that came out of, you know, what today we would call science. He didn't call it science then. Uh, and I think that uh, what gets glossed over in the history books is that that shift actually took 100 years, right? Like it was, it was the 1510s when he said, uh, you know, look, everybody, I really think that um, – you know, we talk about sunrise and sunset, and we think that the sun is moving across the sky to produce day and night. I actually think we've got that backwards. Like, I think that what's happening is the sun is fixed, and it only seems to be moving because we are turning away from it every day. And, you know, and he had his argument, and it was based on mathematics. And the immediate reaction of society was, you know, kind of to to laugh at Copernicus and pat him on the head and say, oh, <laughs> okay, okay, we, we see the mistake that you've made here. You seem to think that math can tell us something about reality, but but reality, you know, math is just squiggles on paper. It doesn't tell us anything about the world. You, you want to know what reality is, you've got to ask, you know, the church authority. A century later, 
we start to have things called telescopes and there's people like Galileo who say, you know, I wonder if I point this up in the sky and if I can actually get data to you know, help prove this crazy idea. So it took us a century for us to accept uh, a fundamental change in the relationship between heaven and earth. And I think not so much the person, but I think that the issue that is the same for us today is climate change, right? Where we have all of this science now, and, and we're getting more and more every year that says, look, we need to fundamentally rethink the relationship between heaven and earth, between, between what happens here on the ground and what happens in the sky above us. And this evidence is getting stronger and stronger that, that it, 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 it controls or it should control our choice making. And, you know, I, and so I think that climate change is maybe not Copernicus, but it's our Copernican moment, right? And the history wow. books are going to look back at us and say, did it take us 100 years again to, to make that shift? Or as we keep, you know, telling ourselves, you know, we're so modern, we are so scientific in our thinking, can we in some ways be, you know, are we more rational as a, as a civilization 500 years later? So are we then to say then that climate change deniers are the Catholic Church, they're the Pope? Hey, that's a good one. That's a good one. I mean, some people are, right? There's the, the analogy there is, you know, we, we're holding on to um, a previous way of thinking or to a previous authority or we are um, reluctant to share the authority to decide what's true and and what's important and i think that you know obviously the 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 rationales are completely different they're not necessarily picking up the bible although i guess some people might be um but i think a lot of the um a lot of sort of what's happening in our minds uh is, psychologically is 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 very similar that i've got a frame for looking at the world and, you know, whatever mythology we might have about, you know, modernity and, uh, and rationality, uh, the, the deeper truth might be that we aren't that sensitive to uh, reason when it conflicts with sort of the, the paradigm that we've already grown up in. So let's do Gutenberg. Gutenberg. I mean, uh, it would be it would be perfect and cute if uh, the direct analogy was Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, and I guess the other thing about you know history and you know any historians listening in will you know have been shouting this at uh, at their computer for the last half hour. I mean, history likes to remember you know the person, the inventor. Uh, I mean, the reality, of course, with the printing press is that, you know, Gutenberg was uh, a, a person who put the pieces together, but in some ways it was a global technology. I mean, if paper had not made it to Europe from China, um, there wouldn't have been a printing press. If, if you know, the grape and olive presses hadn't made it to Germany from Italy, there wouldn't have been a printing press. 
if there wasn't a strong industry of metalworking and, and, and chemistry in Mainz to help him figure out some of the technical challenges of what he was trying to do, th- there wouldn't be a, a printing press. So in some ways, he was the you know, he was the apple <laughs> of of the 15th century. So there were these great technologies that people were, were were figuring out, and he put them together to solve. Uh, uh, well, yeah, maybe Apple's a good example because he didn't put them together to solve a problem. You know, it, it's more like the iPhone. He put them together and said, mm-hmm. "I think you people are going to discover that this is a really useful combination." Of capabilities, I mean, I, I I guess this is now the tenth, eleventh anniversary of the iPhone. Mine is an embarrassingly old model, um, but you know, when it first came out, we thought, oh yeah, that's cool. I guess it might be a great consumer device, but I don't think we could have imagined how it would become so central to our daily lives as it has today. And it was the same way, actually, with with the printing press. I mean, uh, Gutenberg went bankrupt because he couldn't figure out how to make money with his printing press. And the obvious problem was that uh, he couldn't find... Did no one tell him that he would just print money? (laughs) 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 Oh, good thinking. You know, had he been from Venice and not German, (laughs) I bet you would have come up with that one. Um, But, like, his problem was he couldn't find a book that would... uh, that people would demand in sufficient volume to print it because printing was expensive, right? I mean, it's relatively cheap to write out one copy than to make all of these little metal letters and then arrange them on these, on these frames page by page It's a very laborious and expensive thing. Uh, and he couldn't figure out what to, what to print. And the Bible, I mean, now, of course we think, well, it must've, you know, the Bible was the book that everyone wanted, but uh, in his time, uh, no one read the Bible. I mean, uh, you weren't allowed to read the Bible, you know, unless you were educated, right, by the church. And so you had the appropriate knowledge to be able to handle that book safely. Um, so, you know, the and Bible. Was, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, actually, I, I, but, you know, so he, he creates the technology. Um, mm-hmm. He goes bankrupt, but then people start to figure things out. Right. And so you have people like Martin Luther and Martin Luther was one of the key catalysts who said that, you know, now we have this new technology. It should be possible for everybody to get a copy of the Bible. And by the way, I'm going to flip our whole philosophy on this. The, the church in Rome says you shouldn't read it because they want to control your relationship with God. I'm telling you that you should read it because I want you to have a personal relationship with God. And suddenly everyone has everyone who follows Martin Luther has a reason uh, not only to read the Bible, but first to learn to read. This is an important catalyst for for education. And here I go rambling again. I'm sorry. I'm just... oh, no, 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 no. It's fine. <laughs> so we are saying then that Gutenberg is the Apple iPhone. And then through that iPhone, there are various apps because when the iPhone first came out, it didn't have. Um, no, nobody thought of apps. The apps were like iPhone two and three, weren't they? Right, you know, and so it, it became the ecosystem, apps. right? Mm. Exactly, exactly. So, so, so today the, we talk about an app ecosystem, and and in the nineteen sixties, uh, Marshall McLuhan, who I mentioned before, he talked about the Gutenberg Galaxy, 
mm-hmm. but it really is, I think, the, the same concept that this general purpose technology that then society finds so many purposes for until it becomes impossible to imagine a society without it because we use it everywhere. Right. So we've got two out of our four. Columbus. So he sails off in 1492 across the ocean blue. Who is our early 21st century Columbus-like person or organization? It's a great question. So what I think, so uh, first, I don't know. I'm thinking as we go here. Two, you know, I guess what was a couple of things that were key about Columbus um, was, uh, you know, he had maybe, yeah, maybe Elon Musk is the one who's first coming to mind. Last thing before we go tonight is about what we witnessed in Florida today. An immigrant to this country cemented his status as a leader in science and technology whose name may indeed belong alongside those of Edison and Jobs. Put another way, Elon Musk today showed the world how it's done. SpaceX, the company he started, launched the biggest rocket ever shot off since the moon missions from NASA's launch pad 39A, where we launched the mission to the moon. Eight minutes after launch, both side booster rockets came back down to Earth and landed on land in Florida at the same time, a colossal feat of engineering. And think about the gulf between Elon Musk and all that he can imagine and build and the parts of our lives that don't have an Elon Musk to care for them. See, Columbus, um, he didn't set sail, you know, in search of America. He set sail in search of Asia, right? And and, and that's where the, the game was at because um, the Ottoman Turks had conquered the Eastern Mediterranean. Europe had lost its sort of overland Silk Road uh, access to Asia, and everyone started to look for some sea route to get to those those valuable spices. And people knew the world was round, uh, and the Portuguese were sort of going around the southern tip of Africa, and Vasco da Gama found that route, and you know, Columbus and other people figured, you know, if we just keep sailing west, uh, you know, we got to hit Asia eventually. Now, you know, things that he didn't know, the world uh, was about four times as big as he imagined it would be. People didn't know about not only the Americas, but the Pacific Ocean that lay between the Americas in Asia. Um, and so, you know, Columbus wasn't necessarily the visionary who who knew that there was a new world and bravely set sail to get there. Um, he was a businessman who saw a big, bold opportunity, was able to mobilize a lot of uh, outside capital, in this case, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, to finance his crazy venture, and didn't end up where he expected. But uh, boy, did he land somewhere valuable. And I think that that and I've never met Elon Musk, although um, his mom is actually from my home province in Saskatchewan. Fun fact, my home province in Canada. 
Um, but he never returns my calls. But but I would bet <laughs> that if one asked him, like, so what what are you doing? Like the, this Hyperloop and 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 Solar City and you know and Tesla and now you've got um, you know SpaceX. Like, what really are you doing? I wouldn't be surprised if he would agree with the Columbus analogy and say, like, I know there's something out there, and I've got a I've got an idea of where I could end up, and I I have an idea of how that will make us money, uh, how that will be lucrative, but I'm also expecting that along the way, I'm going to land somewhere I didn't expect, but it's also going to be big. It's also going to be important, maybe bigger and more important than the target that I thought I was aiming for. Because so, I think that, that that's the kind of enthusiasm that people have who sort of, you know, are, 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 are sucked into those projects is this sense that, yeah, who knows if this works, but you're going to land somewhere important, aren't you? So that Tesla Roadster is going to land on some <laughs> planet and then 500 years later, we, Elon Musk is going to be the progenitor of some mass genocide of some alien race. Is that what we're saying? Oh, my goodness. Well, that would okay, be... Okay, I said that, I said that somewhat in jest. In jest. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, if that... if Well, we'll come back to this podcast if that happens. And they say, boy, we shouldn't right. listen to Royfield. <laughs> so Savonarola now I know who at least I think I know who you're going to say that his modern equivalent is and that there are and it has to be said that on the face of it there are very many parallels but before, before you tell us who the modern Savonarola is why don't you tell us exactly who he is because I know that it's a name which is not quite lost to history but doesn't get bandied about in uh, modern parlance the way that let's say like like Napoleon's name does or mm. other kind of people from early modern history so um, why don't you first tell us who he was and then who he is today sure I mean it, what, I think the 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 biggest mark on history that Savonarola left that uh people today would still recognize is the bonfire of the vanities um that was him so uh he was uh, a prophet uh the catholic church felt that he was a, a false prophet uh he was a populist he was a political populist um who uh came to the city of florence in uh, the late 1400s and he was one of these people who looked at a period of rapid change and saw something corrupt taking place, uh, who saw a corruption of religion, who saw a corruption of society in the changing of tastes and technologies and behaviors. And, and Florence in the late 1400s, I mean, it was a place that was quite unlike anywhere else in Europe. Uh, it was fabulously liberal, um, you know, sort of 30% of the population was literate in uh, a time when, you know, no more than maybe 5% of Europe could even sign their own name. Um, and it was this crossroads of artists and migrants, you know, not just from Europe, but from uh, the Middle East and from Northern Africa. And there was this, there was this cultural flourishing 
taking place in Florence. It was funded by the Medici, who were pumping lots of money into the creation of new art, who were patrons for people like Michelangelo. Um, and this one city produced more artistic masters in the Renaissance than the rest of, of the European continent combined. And Savonarola walks in and just sees, you know, kind of the devil's hand at work everywhere. Uh, and he whips up um, a population that, you know, was filled with a lot of anxiety. Um, the times were cooperating with that sense of anxiety, sort of like the, the year 1500 was approaching and a lot of devout Christians thought that was going to be the end of days. Uh, the Ottomans were invading from the East. The, the French were invading from the West. And he looked at all of that, all of that anxiety, and he pointed at the Medici and said, they are to blame. It is these elites. It is these comfortable, uh, faraway authorities who aren't providing the strong moral leadership that you need to navigate through this time. Uh, but follow me, <laughs> and I will make this city richer, more glorious, more powerful than she has ever been. I will rebuild Christ's religious republic here on earth. Uh, and that was the bonfire of the vanities. Uh, and that campaign ultimately led uh, the Medici to running away from Florence in fear for their lives uh, and for him installing himself uh, right in the center of Renaissance Europe as this populist uh, conservative king. <laughs> so I don't know who that sounds like. I, 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 I struggle <laughs> to think of a contemporary parallel. Uh, but if I could find one, boy, that would be a good one. Um, maybe, maybe Justin Trudeau. Uh, <laughs> I'm really rich. I'll show you that in a second. And by the way, I'm not even saying that in a brag. That's the kind of mindset. That's the kind of thinking you need for this country. People that know me like me. Does my family like me? I think so. But all of these politicians that I'm running against now, they're trying to disassociate. I mean, you looked at Bush. It took him five days to answer the question on Iraq. He couldn't answer the question. He didn't know. I said, is he intelligent? Then I looked at Rubio. He was unable to answer the question. Is Iraq a good thing or a bad thing? He didn't know. He couldn't answer the question. How are these people going to lead us? How are we going to go back and make it great again? We can't. They don't have a clue. They can't lead us. And I can tell you, some of the candidates they went in, they didn't know the air conditioner didn't work. They sweated like dogs. They didn't know the room was too big because they didn't have anybody there. I would repeal and replace the big lie Obamacare. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. And I'll build them very inexpensively. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Yeah. Mark my words. Yeah. Obamacare really kicks in in 16, 2016. Obama is going to be out playing golf. He might even be on one of my courses. I would invite him. I actually would say. I have the best courses in the world, so I'd say, you know what, if he wants to, I have one right next to the White House. So, so yeah, I think that, I think that um, Donald Trump... Um, you know, from 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 a historical perspective, uh, there's actually nothing original 
about his political campaign. It's actually one of the oldest playbooks uh, in politics in, in a moment of rapid change and upheaval to, to whip up popular anxieties and channel it against an establishment. Because obviously, in any period of rapid change, it's the establishment, it's the people who presided over the change who are to blame. Um, and, uh, and so the times conspired. To, to make the improbable uh, possible. But whilst I think your analogy is really compelling, and I, I think I fundamentally a- agree with it, definitely in the way that he's taken down by the establishment, it's very plausible to, to, to think that the Republican Party will come to its senses and realise that um, Donald Trump is a, is a false prophet. And he doesn't believe half of what he says. However, Savonarola did believe what he said, didn't he? Whereas with Donald Trump, you, you, you know, it's hard to believe mm. that mm. he is completely and utterly genuine about three quarters of things that he says. You know, that it's pure political expediency. Savonarola never, never was, was he? He absolutely believed that millennium's coming and uh, you know and we're going to hell in the handbasket and i've told you because here are the turks you know here, here are the french uh the degeneracy of the republic is being writ large and that's the reason why uh the french have come in and taken all of our stuff and um look at all these horrible horrible degenerate bits of art naked men naked bodies repent 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 shocking wasn't it yeah whereas <laughs> Whereas what Donald Trump has managed to do, yes, he it is a a doom merchant in the way that just about every American president never has been. Hmm. You know, even Reagan talked about sunlit hills, didn't he? And uh, our hmm. better selves, etc. Trump never talks like that. But what Trump has done is he's managed to co-opt the establishment in a way that Savonarola never did. Mm. Um, so mm. yes, the two characters are populists, but their access to the establishment, their acceptance by the establishment is actually very different. Hmm. I, I mean, I think that's a stunning point and, uh, and no, no quarrel here that, um, you know, whereas, uh, you know, Donald Trump was able to co-opt the establishment or it seems that he has, well, I mean, he's the Republican president. Yeah. Um, you know, Savonarola uh, never did, and that was ultimately his downfall. Four years after his bonfire of vanity, he was uh, burned at the stake in the very same square. Now, we'll see if that parallel uh, yeah. <laughs> carries out. What, and, and so before I dig into that, though, one – because I think this is a fascinating distinction. You talk about how – and I agree with you that, you know – History shows that, you know, Savonarola, I mean, we could maybe disagree and there's wide disagreement about, you know, uh, was he an extremist? Was he devout? Whatever. But but he he pretty clearly was committed to a philosophy. And it's hard to imagine that Donald Trump is. But and this, I think, is really interesting. If we maybe distinguish the philosophies of the men from the psychology and, and, you know, sort of without having Savonarola in front of me, I, I think, I, I want to think that, that there was 
a, a psychology that they shared. And this is the kind of the ecstatic confidence of, you know, of the prophet. Because, you know, one thing that's pretty clear is, you know, Savonarola, he, he believed that he was a prophet. He believed that words were true because he spoke them. <laughs> Because he was channeling God, and there that is a kind of yes, <laughs> that, that there is this kind of ecstatic self confidence he has that you know if I say something, it becomes true. And you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you and I, we how many times in the last year we had this experience of like, how, how can you say that? Because like you just said that other thing, and it's and yet the way that he presents himself with this total confidence you know when he cites himself as evidence of <laughs> so psychologically i think there is something of the prophetic malaise going on going on in his head now yeah and you're right i mean the the bigger contemporary question is uh how successfully has he we're talking donald trump here co-opted the establishment and what happens after Donald Trump? Because what happened in Florence after Savonarola is people very quickly realized that, you know, you can crucify the prophet, but that doesn't heal the social divisions that have been amplified and, and supercharged by this man's rhetoric and by his reign. I mean, it took decades to kind of put society back together again. And, you know, that I think is the, the sober thought about the legacy of Donald Trump. I mean, constitutionally four years, maybe eight, but eventually he's got to exit stage right. And then the question is, uh, when he goes away, does America return to some, you know, idealized normality? How do we how do we recreate a kind of space of civil discourse where it's possible to, you know, to to stitch back together some semblance of an American dream where there is a place for those who have been, you know, in his scorched earth rhetoric told they don't belong anymore and you know how do we regain the progress on 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 uh, race relations ethnic relations gender relations relations with the rest of the world because i don't think these things just spring back i think it's going to be a difficult tortured task of of rebuilding wherever the establishment might be on the question people but are thought, but i thought one of the um central kind of outcomes of your book was that Trump has been is going to be good for democracy that actually um, because of his breaking of civic political cultural norms that actually what it's going to do and what it has done is to revive democracy um, and we've seen that definitely not just in America but post Brexit um, the amount of young people who have mm -hmm. now come out to vote uh, we see in the Democratic Party surge in terms of the amount of candidates that want to go and sit in the midterms. We've seen the New York uh, Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, et cetera, all experience mm. massive growth in terms of subscriptions, uh, ditto the Washington Post, et cetera. So mm. Mm. can we say yeah. 
that Trump is going to be the saviour for Western liberal democracy. So, I mean, that is, that is, I think, the good news story, the, the silver lining, if you will, in the chaos of present events. And that is the, the promise of a Renaissance moment, is that these crises, and, you know, I'd, I'd lump the presidency of Donald Trump within that bucket, uh, that these crises are also the compass that highlights the, the hard work that we need to do. But in the same breath, uh, I think that it's really important to underline that, you know, if there's any lesson, any big lesson that comes from history, it's that the course of events is never inevitable, right? That there's there's no inevitability about uh, the presidency of Donald Trump having a positive catalytic effect on, you know, getting us all to sort of step back and say, oh, yeah, you know, like these these things we took for granted, like civics and voting, it all really matters. And, and thank goodness that we've rejuvenated that awareness because now we're going to go forward and we're really going to value it. Uh, that can be a consequence, but it doesn't have to be a consequence. And so, you know, ultimately, I think that the optimism of of, of the book and 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 just of of history generally is to remind us that uh, that the present matters, that that we matter, that the choices, the actions, whether we decide to lean into or step away from, disengage from this moment, matters because the stakes have rarely been as high. Maybe they've never been higher. And, you know, how all of this plays out fundamentally is always up to, you know, those of us who stand at this point on the line of history called the present. So, yeah, it, it is, I think that the crises of the present are a compass, um, but equally a warning because only our actions um, can turn the possible into the inevitable. Uh, Chris, why don't you tell us uh, where people can get your great book? Uh, sure, I'd, I'd love to. It uh, should be available everywhere in, uh, in most major bookstores. Um, it's all over Amazon. Uh, sort of in Kindle edition, audiobook, uh, hardback. Uh, the paperback has just come out in the last couple of months, so I'd encourage everyone to start there because we revised a lot in the wake of Brexit and Trump and all of that. Um, I think it's on iBooks and all the other different great sort of ebook bookstores that are out there. And how can people follow you on social media? Uh, the home, my home base on social media is my website which is uh, K-U-T-A-R-N-A dot net. Uh, I'm a bit old school that way. I, I write a letter. I'm, I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to uh, renew uh, Erasmus's notion of a, a renaissance community of letters. So I, I write a letter once a week um, mm -hmm. to, my, to my friends and readers, which is sort of a, a moment of mindfulness in a, in a day of distraction. Uh, and uh, warmly encourage you to, to read my next one. And you can Isn't sign up on my website. Isn't a letter just uh, a tweet on steroids? <laughs> well, what's, the, what's that line? You know, I didn't have time to, uh, to write a tweet, and so I wrote an email. <laughs> <laughs>
Tweets take a long time, man. <laughs> absolutely. Chris Katana, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. And uh, your book is absolutely brilliant. It's called The Age of Discovery. We haven't talk- spoken about Ian Golden much, have we? Uh, Ian Golden is uh, amazing. It was uh, it was a terrific uh, privilege to co-author the book with him. Uh, he was Nelson Mandela's chief economic advisor in the 1990s, uh, was then at the World Bank, uh, and we met at Oxford where he uh, spent 10 years as director of this fantastic thought shop there called the Oxford Martin School. Um, and, uh, I mean, uh, a, a, more, a more committed... Um, idealist who has also spent his life practicing trying to make the lives of people better uh, it's hard to find so it was a great pleasure to work on the book with him brilliant so um, folks this has been one of our special mid-atlantic shows where we speak to um, a, a, a provocative thinker somebody who's got uh, some good work out there and try and drill into what they think and why they think it um, you can catch up with us on social media, specifically Twitter, where we are at Mid-Atlantic Show. It's also the same thing on Facebook. If you want to send me an email, you can, uh, where I am simply royfield at gmail.com, which is R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. We'll see you all again soon, uh, where we will probably have our normal pundits back. See you. Bye-bye. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. And what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code mom.